Section 1 of The Parallel Lives of the Noble Greeks and Romans, Volume 7. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Parallel Lives of the Noble Greeks and Romans, Volume 7, by Lucius Mestrius Plutarchus, translated by Bernadotte Perrin. Demosthenes, Chapters 1 through 10. The author of the encomium upon Alcibiades for his victory in the chariot race at Olympia, whether he was Euripides, as the prevailing report has it, or some other, says, Socius, that the first requisite to a man's happiness is birth in a famous city. But in my opinion, for a man who would enjoy true happiness, which depends for the most part on character and disposition, is at no disadvantage to belong to an obscure and mean city, any more than it is to be born of a mother who is of little stature and without beauty. For it were laughable to suppose that Julius, which is a little part of a small island of Seos, and Aegina, which a certain Athenian was urgent to have removed as an eyesore of the Piraeus, should breed good actors and poets, but should never be able to produce a man who is just, independent, wise, and magnanimous. The arts, indeed, since their object is to bring business or fame, naturally pine away in obscure and mean cities, but virtue, like a strong and hardy plant, takes root in any place if she finds there a generous nature and a spirit that shuns no labor. Wherefore we also, if we fail to live and think as we ought, will justly attribute this not to the smallness of our native city, but to ourselves, However, when one has undertaken to compose a history based upon readings which are not readily accessible or even found at home, but in foreign cities for the most part, and scattered about among different owners, for him it is really necessary, first and above all things, that he should live in a city which is famous, friendly to the liberal arts and populous, in order that he may have all sorts of books in plenty, and may by hearsay and enquiry come into possession of all those details which elude writers and are preserved with more conspicuous fidelity in the memories of men. He will thus be prevented from publishing a work which is deficient in many, and even in essential things. But as for me, I live in a small city, and I prefer to dwell there that it may not become smaller still. And during the time when I was in Rome and various parts of Italy, I had no leisure to practice myself in the Roman language, owing to my public duties and the number of my pupils in philosophy. It was therefore late, when I was well on in years, that I began to study Roman literature. And here my experience was an astonishing thing, but true, for it was not so much that by means of words I came to a complete understanding of things, as that from things I somehow had an experience which enabled me to follow the meaning of words, but to appreciate the beauty and quickness of the Roman style, the figures of speech, the rhythm, and the other embellishments of language, while I think it a graceful accomplishment, and one not without its pleasures, still the careful practice necessary for attaining this is not easy for one like me, but appropriate for those who have more leisure, and those whose remaining years still suffice for such pursuits. Therefore, in this fifth book of my parallel lives, 
where I write about Demosthenes and Cicero. I shall examine their actions and their political careers to see how their natures and dispositions compare with one another, but I shall make no critical comparison of their speeches, nor try to show which was the more agreeable or the more powerful orator. For useless, as Ion says, is a dolphin's might upon dry ground, a maxim which Cecilius, who goes to excess in everything, forgot when he boldly ventured to put forth a comparison of Demosthenes and Cicero. But really it is possible that, if the know thyself of the oracle were an easy thing for every man, it would not be held to be a divine injunction. In the case of Demosthenes and Cicero, then, it would seem that the deity originally fashioned them on the same plan, implanting in their natures many similarities, such as their love of distinction, their love of freedom in their political activities, and their lack of courage for wars and dangers, and uniting in them also many similarities of fortune. For in my opinion, two other orators could not be found who, from small and obscure beginnings became great and powerful, who came into conflict with kings and tyrants, who lost each a daughter, who were banished from their native cities and returned with honor, and who, after taking to flight again and being captured by their enemies, ended their lives as soon as their countrymen ceased to be free, so that if there should be a competition between nature and fortune, as between artists, it would be difficult to decide whether the one made the men more alike in their characters or the other in their circumstances of their lives. But I speak of the more ancient first. Demosthenes, the father of Demosthenes, belonged to the better class of citizens, as Theopompus tells us, and was surnamed Cutler because he had a large factory and slaves who were skilled workmen in this business. But as for what Ascanes, the orator, says of the mother of Demosthenes, namely, that she was a daughter of one Glion, who was banished from the city on a charge of treason, and of a barbarian woman, I cannot say whether he speaks truly, or is uttering slander and lies. However, at the age of seven, Demosthenes was left by his father in affluence, since the total value of his estate fell little short of fifteen talents. But he was wronged by his guardians, who appropriated some of his property to their own uses, and neglected the rest, so that even his teachers were deprived of their pay. It was for this reason, as it seems, that he did not pursue the studies which were suitable and proper for a well-born boy, and also because of his bodily weakness and fragility since his mother would not permit him to work hard in the palestra, and his tutors would not force him to do so. For from the first he was lean and sickly, and his opprobrious surname of Batalus is said to have been given him by the boys in mockery of his physique. Now Batalus, as some say, was an effeminate flute-player, and Antiphanes wrote a farce in which he held him up to ridicule for this. But some speak of Batalus as a poet who wrote voluptuous verses and drinking songs, and it appears that one of the parts of the body which it is not decent to name was at that time called Batalus by the Athenians. 
but the name of Argos, for they tell us that Demosthenes had this nickname also, was given him with either reference to his manners, which were harsh and savage, the snake being called Argos by some of the poets, or with reference to his way of speaking, which was distressing to his hearers, Argos being the name of a composer of vile and disagreeable songs. So much on this head. The origin of his eager desire to be an orator, they tell us, was as follows. Callistratus, the orator, was going to make a plea in court on the question of Oropus, and the trial was eagerly awaited, not only because of the ability of the orator, who was then at the very height of his reputation, but also because of the circumstances of the case, which was notorious. Accordingly, when Demosthenes heard the teachers and tutors agreeing among themselves to be present at the trial, with great importunity he persuaded his own tutor to take him to the hearing. This tutor, having an acquaintance with public officials who opened the courts, succeeded in procuring a place where the boys could sit unseen and listen to what was said. Callistratus won the case and was extravagantly admired, and Demosthenes conceived a desire to emulate his fame, seeing him escorted on his way by the multitude and congratulated by all. But he had a more wondering appreciation of the power of his oratory, which was naturally adapted to subdue and master all opposition. Wherefore, bidding farewell to his other studies and to the usual pursuits of boyhood, he practiced himself laboriously in declamation, with the idea that he too was to be an orator. He also employed Isaeus as his guide to the art of speaking, although Isocrates was lecturing at the time, either, as some say, because he was an orphan and unable to pay Isocrates his stipulated fee of ten minas, or because he preferred the style of Isaias for its effectiveness and adaptability in actual use. But Hermippus says that he once came upon some anonymous memoirs in which it was recorded that Demosthenes was a pupil of Plato, and got most help from him in rhetorical studies. He also quotes Sestibius as saying that from Callias the Cyrusian and others that Demosthenes secretly obtained the rhetorical systems of Isocrates and Alcidamas and mastered them. However this may be, when Demosthenes came of age, he began to bring suits against his guardians and to write speeches attacking them. They devised many aphasians and new trials, but a Demosthenes, after practicing himself in these exercises, as Thucydides says, not without toil and danger, won his cause, although he was not able to recover even a small fraction of his patrimony. However, he acquired sufficient practice and confidence in speaking, and got a taste of the distinction and power that go with forensic contests and therefore essayed to come forward and engage in public matters. And just as Laomedon the Orchomenian, so we are told, practiced long-distance running by the advice of his physicians to ward off some disease of the spleen, and then, after restoring his health in this way, entered the great games and became one of the best runners of the long course, 
So Demosthenes, after applying himself to the oratory, in the first place for the sake of recovering his private property, by this means acquired ability and power in speaking, and at last in the public business, as it were in the great games, won the first place among the citizens who strove with one another on the Bema. And yet, when he first addressed the people, he was interrupted by their clamors and laughed at for his inexperience, since his discourse seemed to them confused by long periods and too harshly and immoderately tortured by formal arguments. He had also, as it would appear, a certain weakness of voice, an indistinctness of speech, and shortness of breath, which disturbed the sense of what he said by disjoining his sentences. And finally, when he had forsaken the assembly, and was wandering about dejectedly in the Piraeus, Eunomus the Thracian, who was already a very old man, caught sight of him and upbraided him because, although he had a style of speaking, which was most like that of Pericles, he was throwing himself away out of weakness and lack of courage, neither facing the multitude with boldness nor preparing his body for these forensic contests, but suffering it to wither away in slothful neglect. At another time, too, they say, when he had been rebuffed by the people, and was going off homewards disconcerted and in great distress, Satyrus the actor, who was a familiar acquaintance of his, followed after and went indoors with him. Demosthenes lamented to him that although he was the most laborious of all the orators, and had almost used up the vigor of his body in this calling he had no favor with the people but debauchees sailors and illiterate fellows were listened to and held the bema while he himself was ignored you are right demosthenes said satyrus but i will quickly remedy the cause of all this if you will consent to recite offhand for me some narrative speech from euripides or sophocles Demosthenes did so, whereupon Satyrus, taking up the same speech after him, gave it such a form and recited it with such appropriate sentiment and disposition that it appeared to Demosthenes to be quite another. Persuaded now how much of ornament and grace action lends to an oratory, he considered it of little or no use for a man to practice declaiming if he neglected the delivery and disposition of his words. After this, we are told that he built a subterranean study, which, in fact, was preserved in our time, and into this he would descend every day without exception in order to form his action and cultivate his voice, and he would often remain there even for two or three months together, shaving one side of his head in order that shame might keep him from going abroad, even though he greatly wished to do so. Nor was this all, but he would make his interviews, conversations, and business with those outside, the foundation and starting point for eager toil. For as soon as he parted from his associates, he would go down into his study, and there would go over his transactions with them in due order, and the arguments used in defense of each course. And still further, whatever speeches he chanced to hear delivered, he would take up by himself, and reduce to propositions and periods, 
and he would introduce all sorts of corrections and changes of expression into the speeches made by others against himself, or contrariwise by himself against others. Consequently, it was thought that he was not a man of good natural parts, but that his ability and power were the product of toil. And there would seem to be strong proof of this in the fact that Demosthenes was rarely heard to speak on the spur of the moment. But though the people often called upon him by name as he sat in the assembly, he would not come forward unless he had given thought to the question and was prepared to speak upon it. For this, many of the popular leaders used to rail at him, and Pythias, in particular, once told him scoffingly that his arguments spelt of lampwicks. To him, then, Demosthenes made a sharp answer. Indeed, said he, thy lamp and mine, O Pythias, are not privy to the same pursuits. To the rest, however, he made no denial at all, but confessed that his speeches were neither altogether unwritten, nor yet fully written out. Moreover, he used to declare that he who rehearsed his speeches was a true man of the people, for such preparation was a mark of deference to the people, whereas heedlessness of what the multitude will think of his speech marks a man of oligarchical spirit, and one who relies on force rather than on persuasion. Another circumstance, too, is made a proof of his lack of courage for an emergency, namely that when he was interrupted by the clamors of the people, Demades often rose and spoke offhand in his support, but he never rendered such a service to Demades. How then, some might say, could Ascanes call him a man of most astonishing boldness in his speeches? And how was it that when Python of Byzantium was inveighing with much boldness and a great torrent of words against the Athenians, Demosthenes alone rose up and spoke against him? Or how did it happen that when Lamachus the Muranian had written an encomium on Kings Philip and Alexander, in which many injurious things were said of Thebes and Olynthus, and while he was reading it aloud at Olympia, Demosthenes came forward and rehearsed with historical proofs all the benefits which the people of Thebes and Chalcidice had conferred upon Greece. And on the other hand, all the evils of which the flatterers of the Macedonians had been the cause, and thereby so turned the minds of the audience that the sophist was terrified at the outcry against him and slunk away from the festival assemblage. But although Demosthenes, as it would appear, did not regard the other characteristics of Pericles as suitable for himself, he admired and sought to imitate the formality of his speech and bearing, as well as his refusal to speak suddenly or on every subject that might present itself, as if his greatness was due to these things, but he by no means sought the reputation which is won in a sudden emergency, nor did he often of his own free will stake his influence upon chance. However, those orations which were spoken offhand by him had more courage and boldness than those which he wrote out. If we are to put any confidence in our Eratosthenes, Demetrius of Valerian, and the comic poets... Of these, Eratosthenes says that often in his speeches, Demosthenes was like one frenzied, and the Falerian says that once, as if under inspiration, he swore by the famous metrical oath to the people, 
by earth, by springs, by rivers, and by streams. Of the comic poets, one calls him a ropoparathras, or a trumpety braggart, and another, ridiculing his youth of the antithesis, says this, First slave, my master, as he took, retook. Second slave, Demosthenes would have been delighted to take over this phrase. Unless, indeed, this, too, was a jest of the Etiphanes upon the speech of Demosthenes concerning Halonisius, in which the orator counseled the Athenians not to take the island from Philip, but to retake it. Still, all men used to agree that Demades, in the exercise of his natural gifts, was invincible, and that when he spoke on the spur of the moment, he surpassed the studied preparations of Demosthenes. And Ariston the Chian records an opinion which Theophrastus also passed upon the two orators. When he asked namely what sort of an orator he thought Demosthenes was, he replied, worthy of the city and what Demades too good for the city. And the same philosopher tells us that Polyuctus Cephadon, one of the political leaders of that time at Athens, declared that Demosthenes was the greatest orator, but Phocion, the most influential speaker, since he impressed the most sense in the fewest words. Indeed, we are told that even Demosthenes himself, when other Phocian mounted the Bema to reply to him, would say to his intimates, Here comes the chopper of my speeches. Now it is not clear whether Demosthenes had this feeling toward Phocian because of his oratory, or because of his life and reputation, believing that a single word or nod from a man who is trusted has more power than very many long periods. End of section 1